Glad you're with us if you're worshiping with us here at Garfield Memorial Church. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor, and we're continuing our teaching series on reconciled. This whole concept of reconciliation, something, a ministry of reconciliation that the Bible is very clear that we have been given. Important work, crucial work, maybe more meaningful work right now than any other time in our particular human lives. This, this work of reconciliation. God um, was in Christ, the Bible said, reconciling the world to himself. And he then gave us this ministry of reconciliation, and he said to his followers, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. It's not rocket science. We're to go out as agents of God's reconciliation in the world. And Pastor Scott and I began this series uh, in creation at the very beginning of the book of the, uh, the Bible, Genesis, and we looked at foundational questions that God asks us, right? He asks us, where are you? Not a geographical question. There were only two people on the planet. I think God knew where they were. But a question of where are you in your walk with me? Where are you in your relationship with me? Where are you spiritually? One great theologian says, we are not physical people having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual people having a physical experience. Where are you on that journey? He says in the last week, why are you so angry? Why are you angry? Why are you so easily offended? Why, why are you always comparing yourself to others? And that piercing question of last week, so, and where is your brother? Where is your sister? In the New Testament, that question appears as, who is your neighbor? And are you their keeper? Do you feel responsibility for them? Do you feel it is your work to enhance their lives and, and tend to their hurts? Is that your job? Are you their keeper? Isn't it interesting that the Hebrew blessing was the Lord bless you and keep you? God's saying, are you doing that? for others who bear the image of God too. And only when you get that work begin to be done on the inside of you are we spiritually fit then to come in to the ministry of reconciliation. And so now we're at the beginning of the Bible, now we're at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, right? It just shows us the, the length and the breadth of this work, right? And don't worry, we're gonna come back because there's some good stuff in the middle. But we're at this, and I, and I thought about that, that this, that's what Paul prayed about, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians, which is a blueprint letter. It's a letter to the church, how to be the church, how to live as the church in the world. We spent a long time after Easter just putting on that whole armor, thank God, that we can go out and stand firm against the wiles of the enemy and be God's people in the world. But Paul stops in the midst of that before he gets to that, and he says, I bow the knee, I get down on my knees. Now, we think that's not unusual, that's extremely unusual. Nobody bowed down on their knees to pray back then. It's a very modern thing that happened. That's only something that happened in the last thousand years. It wasn't back then, nobody, nobody bowed to pray. When you prayed, you stood. That's why Jesus said in Matthew, as you stand praying, <laughs> and you remember you got some reconciling work to do. Forgive, and then come back and pray. As you stand praying, the only time anybody would ever kneel is if it was something so intense, it would have got everybody's attention, they would have said, look at that weirdo, like, like Hannah kneeling in the altar and the priest thought she was drunk. Paul goes down on his knees. 
hard and says what? I pray that you might know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I pray that you might know what God did to reconcile you unto himself and reconcile you one to another. And so we get this then, this, this picture at the end in Revelation. Now, you'll have to come to the after party for me to, if you want to ask everything you want to know about Revelation, but we're afraid to ask. Anytime I preach on Revelation, people start looking outside the windows, you know, looking around. And, and, and there's a lot of stuff in here. But the word Revelation literally means apocalypse. That's in the Greek. Now, Hollywood's had a fun time with that and everything else in Revelation. The word apocalypse simply meant this. It meant an unveiling. What that is, is like if you went to theater back in the day, I mean, I love the theater, but today, you know, everything's so, the sets are computerized, and there's all this wild stuff. Back in the day, they had to be kind of creative, and oftentimes you would have the opening uh, scene in a play. I went to Christmas Carol years and years and years ago downtown, and it had like a mother sitting in a chair reading uh, the story to her son, and, and then, you know, in front of the grand drape, the curtain, the big thing that closes, and they're out in front of it, right? And then they do this scene, and all of a sudden, what would happen? The, the drape would open, and there's this marvelous set behind it. That's Revelation. Revelation is an unveiling, saying you're seeing all these things that are going on. You see, you know, the struggle. You're, 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 you're gasping for air sometimes. You're trying to put one foot in front of the other. But let me just unveil the curtain for you and let you see everything spiritually that's going on. And at this moment, when he, God pulls back the curtain in Revelation 7, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about exactly where that is. When he pulls back the curtain, we see the church as the vehicle of reconciliation. You say, where is that in there, Chip? The church of every nation, tribe, people, and language. The church for all people, not some people. The church of hope for everyone, not just someone. That church, that Church is standing right there, triumphant and praising God and singing unison songs together. And we see that, my goodness, right, that there is a trajectory for the church. See, if you don't, <laughs> I put my e-note this week. I don't know if you've ever read Alice in Wonderland, but, you know, Lewis Carroll's credited with coming up with this. And in Alice in Wonderland, you remember, she goes behind the looking glass She's in this place, she, she doesn't know where she's going, and she runs into the Cheshire Cat. You remember that story? And she goes in there, and the Cheshire Cat's this little guy, and so like, where are you going? She goes, I, I don't even know where I am. What do you mean, where am I going? And he says, in essence, what they give credit to Carol is saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. We don't have that excuse as the church. We're shown where we're going. We're shown the trajectory of the church. We're on a mission. It's clear, right? But there's some assembly required. <laughs> you ever done that? You ever bought something? Yeah, if, you buy, if you go to the dollar store or something like that, and you buy things there to save a few bucks, how many know you're not buying something off the floor of Home Depot? Like already put together, right? You, you got to put it together. And I remember this summer, we took a little break down by a lake, and the family went down, and we were... Uh, Tiana and I wanted to grill my oldest daughter, and there was no grill at the place. So we said, let's just go down to the dollar store and buy a cheap charcoal grill, and we'll put it together, and, and you know, we'll leave it there for anybody else. And we thought it was a good idea. We went down there and bought a grill for $9.99. Nice one, too. Set up like this, wheels on it, 
little, you know, like, whoa, this is a deal. How many know um, when you buy a grill like that for $9.99, there's some assembly required? And they don't come with, like, the encyclopedia of instructions. Like, we opened it up, it was like, these are the pieces. There was no instructions. Now, my daughter, she went a couple years to University of Architecture at Cincinnati. She can put stuff together, but we were arguing, man. We were trying to make this thing go there and this thing go there. And what do you do then? Well, how do, what would you have done if you're trying to put something together? Like, what do you do? You look at the box, right? And so that Tiana finally yelled at me, and she said, Dad, just hold up the box. That's what I did for the next 20 minutes. I just held the box as little Michelangelo put together what she saw in the painting together. Do you know God holds up the box for us? See, we know what the church is supposed to do. Jesus makes that clear in Luke chapter 10. He says, first to the 70, we talked about this months ago, it's a, it's a, it's a leadership training. He's, he's preparing them for the work of the church. And the first thing he says is, go, right? Meaning live outward. And do what? He gives them the same threefold ministry that he had. To preach the good news, to heal hurting people, and to cast out evil spirits. Same three, three things Jesus did. That's our job. We know what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to announce the good news. We're not Dr. Phil. We don't give good advice. We announce good news. Right? This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. We share that. We announce it. And we heal hurting people. We go to the margins. We go to the overlooked. We're out there with the healing hands of Christ in people who've been wounded or broken or bored or misdirected. And that's why we go outside who's been left out, outside the circle as Garfield's mission is to widen the circle and be the healing presence of Christ. And do what? To cast out evil. Systems and people and structures that wound and oppress and hurt. It's our job. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and you will be my wrecking crew to tear down the gates of hell. That's what it says. So we know what it's supposed to do. When Tiana and I bought the grill, we knew what it was supposed to do. We just know how to put it together. And God says, this is how you put it together. This is the church. This is, this is my redeeming, reconciling agent. And you have to will yourself to be part of this, to walk, work, and worship together as one across differences of uh, political persuasions or, or ethnicity or culture. You, you need to will yourself into this. And, and no, because this isn't jo God's job to figure this out, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, oh, well, we'll just wait and we'll just hang out in this all-conservative church, all-liberal church, all this church, all that church, and then God will fix it in the end. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He said, you're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Hello, here's the box, here's heaven. Now start living out that now. In fact, Jesus, the night he died, prayed that we would be completely one. He prays, I'm praying for myself, glorify myself, Lord. I'm praying for my disciples, but I'm praying for those who will come to know me through their testimony. That's us. The last night of his life, he was praying for us here in 2020. And what did he pray? Just one thing. He said, I pray that they would be completely one so that the world would know you sent me. I want to be a so that church. See, when you get that mission, when you understand that mission, you will yourself to it. 
The Apostle Paul willed himself to this mission. And you say, well, where did he see it? Well, you know, yeah, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, but he wasn't around, you know, when John uh, gave his letter of revelation. Okay, but read 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul said, I was taken up into paradise. I saw things that no one saw. I heard things that no one should say. He went up there and saw it. And then he lived for it. Look what he says to the Philippian church. He writes in uh, chapter 3 of Philippians. He said, not that I've already obtained this, right? Or I've already reached the goal. But I press on to make it my own. I do not consider that I have made it. But this one thing I do. Forgetting those things that lie behind, I strain forward. Greek scholars say that's, that's the work of elliptical. That's a, a bench-pressing work, straining forward. He's working. He's willing himself. He's keeping his, the old Paul on wrap so he can be part of this reconciling movement. Strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. And he tells us what that goal is, the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's got a name. He knows where he's going. And every road won't get him there. One road will get him there. And it was the road to be the reconciling church. And how many of you know, God, Paul was given a specific mission. What was it? To go and preach the good news to Democrats. To go and preach the good news to Republicans. To go and preach the good news to conservatives. To go and preach the good news. It is. He was to go and preach the good news to Gentiles. See, Jew and Gentile to us is so tame. Let me tell you, whatever animosity we have in our country right now, Jew and Gentile had it on steroids. I mean, you know, they, they, they wouldn't even eat bread from one another if they touched it. There were laws to, to stone them and kill them. There were surrounding the temple in Jerusalem, there were signs, any Gentile enter here, enter at the risk of your life. And Paul was called to go get those people. Real popular, right? Great message. Why did Paul answer that call? Because he saw the box. Because he knew who Jesus was. Because he knew he was a good shepherd, not just of some sheep, but all sheep. And Paul went to go and find his brother and find his sister and bring them home to God. And you need to understand something. This is what got him killed. See, everybody thinks Paul died because he preached Jesus. Not true. Not true. Anybody told you that? Not true. Let me show you in Acts 22. At the end of Paul's life, he's on defense of his life. He's shared everything about Jesus and the gospel. No big deal until this verse. When it said, then Paul ends his speech. Then God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Watch this. Up to this point, they listened to him. But then they shouted away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Paul was not killed for preaching Jesus. Paul was killed for trying to build the church of every nation, tribe, people, and language. Because that's our work. That's our job. And it's hard work. <laughs> and it's difficult work. But we're called to it. And Revelation tells us that because, see, let me tell you about Revelation too. Let me just try to get this. Revelation is not a predictor of events. Now, I've got some people on the internet right now that are squirrely mad at me 
because they've been selling Revelation calendars, telling us how all everything is lining up with the star. Revelation is never written as a predictor of events. Revelation is a letter of prophecy. It is a prophetic letter to a particular people in a particular time with a particular message. Yes, there are universals to glean for it, but prophecy does not predict events. Prophecy interprets events. And, and this is written to Christians who are in a time of persecution, right? A lot of things, that we, we think, how many is ready for 2020 to be gone? Like, right, right? Like somebody said, it, it, daylight savings on November 1st. Somebody said, I'm not, I'm not saving, turning my clock back because I don't want one more hour of 2020, right? Like, right? And we think this is rough, and it is, Jack, but let me tell you, it was equally rough back then. Natural catastrophes, disasters, Christians were ostracized. They were mostly poor. They, they were not accepted in the Roman Empire. They were persecuted. They were called unpatriotic because they didn't participate in the Roman games. In fact, when they had the Olympic games, uh, you know, it, for the emperor, because the emperor was like God, and the state was Roma, a goddess, a deified state. Do you know if you booed at the games of the emperor, you could be killed? Because you weren't showing the proper respect? Just saying, been here before. Okay? And, and they were under this pressure. They were supposed to say, Curios uh, Ciceros, which was Caesar is Lord. How could they say that? Curios was the word for Christ. They could only say, Jesus is Lord. But they were under this enormous pressure. And they're struggling to, to preach and to heal and to cast out. And in comes revelation as a word of hope. That God is with you. And let me show you how powerful this is in a church, and I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to let Pastor Terry preach you for nine minutes, and then I'll close this out for like the last five. But here's, here's what, what we see. We see these, this judgment on the world. We see first, God speaks to the church in the city, then God judges, you know, the city, the, the, the Roman city, the city Babylon, and then God redeems the holy city. Its revelation is in three acts. And in the midst of the judgment... There's the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And I love where we get this vision. I'm just going to flash it at you, and then we're going to take a walk with Pastor Terry. The, where we get this is what's called the opening of the seven seals, right? This image of judgment. And you find it, you know, in chapters 6 and 7. And what happens is the, the first seal is open, the second seal is open, the third seal is open, the fourth seal is open. And what is this? It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Right? Boy, Hollywood's have fun with that one too, right? All it is is God is bringing forth the, the judgment on the earth against human arrogance. God is judging this empire and that's persecuting people and so comes with war and pestilence and, and famines and comes against the land. There's a judgment coming on the earth. Then the fifth seal is opened, and what do we have? We have the cry of the martyrs. People who are trying to build this reconciling community are being killed, and, and they're crying out. They're crying out to God, and it's a beautiful image uh, of, of God saying that these who were slain, that's the same word in Revelation used for Jesus, the lamb that was slain. He's saying these who were slain, these aren't meaningless deaths. These are sacrifices on the altar. What Irenaeus used to say, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. They're building the church even by the giving of their lives. And I got to tell you, this is a very different vision than some people that preach the rapture thing where, where you, know, um, you know, if my car, that's how the bumper sticker is, my 
car is abandoned, I just went to the rapture. There's a teaching out there that says, well, God's going to take all his holy people, saints, and he's going to pull them out of the tribulation and all these bad things will happen, right? Like he's going to spare them that. That's not in Revelation. I'm making people mad, I know. Come to the after party, yell at me. But the truth is, these are saints going through the tribulation. We're not out of the world, we're in the world. We're not of the world, but we're sent into the world. And we're in the midst of the tribulation. And we're in the midst of the suffering. Doing what? Building, preaching, healing, going, resisting. That's his church. And the fifth seal is open. You hear the cry of the Mars. Then the sixth seal is open, right before the seventh one, right? The sixth seal is open. And now God is coming to judge the world. God is coming to the world with judgment. He came in gentleness the first time. But Jesus will come again in power. And he comes, and what happens if you read the sixth seal? Now it's not just natural catastrophes. Now the universe falls apart. Stars fall. The sun and moon don't work properly. And now it's time for the seventh seal, right? What's going to happen now when the seventh seal's open? And everybody out of the pool. Done. Right? But before the seventh seal opens, right after all these six seals of judgment, God strangely inserts this vision of the glorious, victorious, reconciled church. It's like a divine interlude. <laughs> it said when Handel wrote his Messiah and he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, you remember that? Is there any bigger piece than the Hallelujah Chorus? But at the very end of the Hallelujah Chorus, if you've ever sung it, Handel puts in what musical critics say is his unusually long rest before the last hallelujah. You know, hallelujah goes a builder, stop, breathe. And then the hallelujah, right? That's us, that's the church. We're the divine interlude. In the midst of all of the, the music and the motion and all these things, there's a rest. There's a vision of what the church is to be. There's a vision of what the community is to be. That's us and we're to provide rest for a turbulent world. And to be out there with the message of reconciliation. So let's take a minute um, as, and take a walk with Pastor Terry. And I'll come back and close us out. As she took a walk, an infamous walk around here uh, at Garfield Memorial. But as she discovered the yearning and the burning, I think that's in all of us for this one true community. Let's watch this together. You know, it's funny, the walks really started out of desperation. When COVID hit, I, I like to work out. I had been working out at a rec center for years. And when they closed down, I joined Planet Fitness. And then three days later, they closed down. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to walk. And so I started walking my dog, Leah, we have a two-year-old German Shepherd, around our neighborhood in Lakewood, sometimes other places. and. It became a really a spiritual practice for me because I would just try to observe. I try to be present and to to see what God might be saying through um, some of the things I'd be seeing. So I'd sometimes take pictures, post them on social media with some thoughts, and the walks really turned into um, an important part of my practice and a time to think. But today I'm going to talk about a walk I took back in 1969 in August to something called Woodstock. 
I was 14 years old and I had been immersing myself in the hippie movement, the counterculture of that time. I had been really taken with it, really captivated by it and espoused those, um, the ideals of peace and love and uh, being together. And so to go to Woodstock, I lived in New York at the time. I grew up in the suburbs of New York. So Woodstock took place in upstate New York, so it wasn't that far for us. And so I uh, took off with my cousin Patty and her older brother, who was our driver. Uh, he was 18. But as soon as we got there, we ditched him. And it was an amazing experience. It's, nobody knew what it was going to be at the time. It was just going to be a, a concert uh, three days out in a beautiful place, uh, Max Yazager's farm. And no one knew that it was gonna be 500,000 people. We were one of the few people that actually bought tickets, but the tickets didn't end up mattering because it was overrun by half a million people that came to that. And it was a kind of a watershed moment. And I think for me, taking seriously all those ideals and ideas of, of peace and, and love, um, I think after that, it was never quite the same. It was never, some of the idealism went away, but, but part of my attraction to, to being a hippie and, and Woodstock was really, I think, kind of a brokenness that I had. I had grown up in the church. Uh, my mom was a Sunday school teacher in the small Lutheran church we went to in uh, the town I grew up in. But when I was um, 11 years old, my mom had a cerebral hemorrhage and she was dead in three days. And um, I prayed to God, like, don't let her die. And, and she died. So I, I just stepped away from God and from church. And I made a deal with my dad that I'd be confirmed, which happened, you know, at 13. And then I was not going to go to church again. And um, so I kept that bargain. But there was something in me that was longing for something else. And the experience I'd had at church as a little girl didn't, didn't do that. But there was something in that movement that just captivated me, that um, it spoke to something in me. And so I, I wandered spiritually for many years and um, was explored Eastern religions and, you know, really kind of used literature and art as, as a way of um, finding fulfillment and finding meaning and finding beauty. I really didn't go back to the formal church until I was in my late 20s and we were expecting our oldest son, Mike. And, and I really went back, not because I believed, not because I had any faith, but because I'd grown up in the church and it gave me something to rebel from. And I remember being at college at University of Chicago and knowing kids that um, didn't have any faith backgrounds. And I felt sorry for them because they had nothing to be mad at. And so I thought, we'll bring up our kids in church. We started going to a church and I little did I know that God would, <laughs> had been pursuing me all along. And, um, I had a conversion experience, not that I was looking for it, but God became real to me and I became a Christian. And then some years later, um, came into ministry. But so that, that Woodstock experience was like an iconic moment, I think in the culture and for me personally, that experience, that, that sense of oneness with people. And I'll never forget looking out at the crowd. At one point we were right up by the stage, me and Patty, and we looked out and saw all these people and, and all these different people, like everybody was at Woodstock. There were people of all ethnicities and just having a good time. There was no violence. There was no 
um, discord and everybody really tried to help each other when the rains came and the mud came and the shortage of food. There was no rancor. There was no fighting. When I ended up going into ministry, again, huge surprise, someone who had been so far from church and so far from God for so many years, but I had a call to ministry and went to seminary and ended up my first um, appointment, as we say in, in the Methodist church, was to Garfield. And um, I was excited. I've been here 17 years just to, to be able to serve in a church as a pastor. And as Garfield has become what we call Revelation 7-9 Church, I think about when I see people on Baptism Sunday and, and when we have communion together and people come up to the table, and I see everybody, I realize that this is what I was looking for all along. In Revelation 7, 9, it says, after this I looked and I saw a multitude that no one could count. And I think back to that multitude that we practically couldn't count back at Woodstock and the multitude of God's people. And it's, it's become what I see church as. I, I couldn't go back to a homogeneous church because this is what the kingdom of God is like. And, and so when I think back to, to what being at Woodstock meant to me, it was just a shadow of the reality of God's kingdom. The only way that we can really live this out and really be the church that God intends, the church that Jesus envisions, that Paul talks about, the only way that we can be that church is with the power of God and the power of Jesus Christ. Because as humans, we can't do it. The hippie movement proved that. It fell apart. It fell into drugs recreationally instead of for spiritual reasons. And it, it, it just disintegrated. Things became commercial. You know, I, I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 13. And he talks about, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But as I grew, I began to see as a as an adult and you know we see through a mirror dark darkly but then we will see face to face and so i think of my experience of woodstock is looking through a mirror dimly and just getting a hint of something and in my childish passion having a that sort of imprint of the kingdom of god and but it it wasn't until i came to christ and came to understand how the church was really intended to be, which we try to live out at Garfield. We're not perfect, we're far from perfect. But I'm so grateful to be part of the, the church where every tribe and tongue and nation, um, even people with different political views, which is the hardest of all, but that we can be together in all our differences, in all our uniqueness, but we're united, not by um, taking drugs and <laughs> listening to rock and roll, which was really a lot of the foundation of uh, the Woodstock experience, I'm not going to lie, but that we're united by devotion to, to Christ, the one who saves us, the one who uh, gives us life and, and brings us reconciliation. And it's really a gift to be able to see, see, see it lived out and to be part of it. And so I'm just grateful. I'm grateful I went to Woodstock 50 years ago, which is crazy, but I'm much more grateful that I've come to get a glimpse into the kingdom of God, a glimpse into how we'll spend eternity. As um, the Woodstock song that Joni Mitchell um, wrote, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong, and everywhere there was 
song and celebration. Well, that vision of the revelation of the church in Revelation is that there's way more than half a million and that uh, we are celebrating and worshiping God and at the feet of the Lamb forever. That's what I want to be part of. That's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> That's a good journey. And Pastor Terry was on it. I, I heard of one famous explorer that they said the, the, the vision of another kingdom always burned within their hearts. I pray the vision of the eternal kingdom, the one true kingdom, the kingdom of rest, the interlude in the midst of the madness, that that kingdom burn in your heart and so direct your lives that you will will yourself into it because this takes work. This takes discipleship. Jesus said, those who will be my followers will deny themselves, take up their own cross and follow me. And notice what this church is. Let's just, just, just look at some marks of it so we know it when we see it and we know where we're going. First, it's a diverse church. Every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's not uh, some kind of where God uh, raises us up into the new heaven and the new earth and wipes out our individuality. God is a lover of diversity. God sees himself in everything that God has created. This is not a melting pot church. That's a terrible image. This is a, it's a salad bowl church. This is a church where there's the lettuce and there's the onions and there's the tomatoes and the carrots and the cucumbers and we relish in the taste of them and we resist the temptation to just pour ranch dressing over everything. But honor it so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Can you imagine what the colors are going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth? Man, you think a sunset, was, a sunrise is blowing your mind now? Wait till we see it then and see the fullness of the manifold witness of God. That's what Paul prayed, you remember? He prayed that the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. The word manifold in Greek means multicolored. It's a diverse church, it's a vast church. It's a number that can't be counted. In fact, it's the same number that's used in Revelation 14 to describe the 144,000. That's not a literal number. People ask me, is, 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 is Revelation literal or is it figurative? It's neither. The language is a propositional language. It's word pictures. It's God playing Pictionary to show us. And the 144,000 is the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles. It's a completion from the old and what God is doing in the beginning and what God is doing now, 12 times 12 is 144 to the thousands, right? It's everybody. In fact, the word thousand, there is the word myriad. That's where multitude, it's myriad, which myriad means 10,000 thousands. It's the largest numerical unit in the Bible. I know sometimes you feel alone. I know sometimes we wonder if this is worth it. It's hard work. Know that you're part of a vast multitude. This is not the faithful few, friends. We're in a vast multitude church. And it's, so it's a diverse church. It's a vast church. It's an offensive church. Everybody goes, yeah, boy, is it ever. All of you watching out there that say Christians are so mean, and yeah, they're offensive. That's not quite what I mean. It can mean that, and that's not a good thing. I mean it's a church on the offense, not on the defense. It's not church circling the wagon and sitting back. Aren't you glad when you heard Pastor Terry's story? I was sitting there, and I was thanking whoever it was that was willing to go on the offensive for her. 
that was willing to get out there and share Jesus with her and, tell, and, and bring her back and to say, look, I understand what you went through. I know you're hurt, but now let me talk to you about Jesus as a healer. If that person had not been on the offense, this church would not be what it is because Pastor Terry would have never come. That's our job. You're on defense. Quit defending the faith. My God, if God needs me to defend him, he's in big trouble. But be an ambassador, be on the offensive with grace and with love and with power and peace and hope and tearing down the gates of hell. And finally, and this is what Terry indicated, it's a triumphant church. All earthly movements will fail. The Bible says, unless God builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But in this church, <laughs> palm branches are raised. Songs of, of declaration are made. And that's what we're part of. And that's what we're called to be. So don't walk with your head down. Walk with your countenance lifted high. Don't be like Cain, a restless wanderer we found out last week. Living in the land of Nod, which meant aimlessness. We have a mark. We have a name. And let's be like Paul. Say this one thing I do. I press on to be part of the movement of the reconciling, mind-blowing love and grace of Jesus Christ, and I will stay at my post. Come on, Garfield Memorial Church. Come on, all of you who are there. Join us in the watch party today. We'll have some fun, but let's go out and not just go to church. Anybody can do that. Let's be this church. Be it. In the name of Jesus Christ, let's close this with prayer.